Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we have Joanne Neighbors, who is a former Army Judge Advocate, former Civil Service, and now is working in a bank, as she said it. So, Joanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was going to say, you were recommended. Interesting story as being both uniform, civil service, and now commercial, your first job outside the government, and you've only been at it for about seven months. Right. So started as an Army JAG straight out of law school. So I went straight through undergrad and law school. I'm like a lot of my colleagues and classmates. Ended up at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center in school in January of 2006 in the basic course. Actually, we started at Fort Lee and uh, got through JAG school. Eight years on active duty that included four duty stations and a year in Iraq. So I was at Fort Bliss, Texas. I was in a joint command at Great Lakes Naval Base. Spent two years as the Chief of Military Justice for the 25th Infantry Division in Hawaii. Sounds great, but it was six months in Hawaii, a year in Iraq, back to Hawaii, and then to the Pentagon. And by the time I got to the Pentagon, all I could think of was somebody stop this ride. I need to get off and throw up. All of my stuff was broken and I had, you know, really kind of no stability personally or or really professionally in my life. I kept getting criminal law jobs that kind of saw my career trajectory and didn't love it. Didn't really want to be a military judge, although a number of my colleagues have done a fantastic job on the bench. And so I really kind of wanted to see what else was out there. Made a transition spending about nine or 10 months on the uh, response systems to adult sexual assault crimes panel, working as a staff attorney at DOD, and then thought, I got to get out of D.C. So I took a job down at Hope Army Airfield, and a couple years later, had had a great team there on the Air Force side, wonderful seeing a different service. Really enjoyed kind of my cross-service experiences, but then took a promotion into a job at Forces Command Headquarters there on Fort Bragg now, the esteemed Fort Liberty. Spent about six years there. In that time, took a lot of different roles between investigations and intelligence to military personnel law and personnel policy issues. Spent a lot of time working with the IG, but really just kind of felt like I was running out of things to learn and my head was kind of bumping up against the ceiling there. And in that time, ended up getting my um, MBA from uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Started the MBA, panicked because I hadn't taken a math class in almost 20 years. Ended up with a finance concentration because I think as JAGs, one of the common themes is that we all do the hardest thing we can any chance we get. And so that was kind of the toughest concentration. And I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this the right way. So ended up having a cohort of about 50 students uh, use my GI Bill, which I strongly encouraged anyone who didn't have kids to pass it along to like I didn't. And really got just a really different perspective on the world. It was an executive MBA program, great cohort of classmates and colleagues. Graduated November of 2019. And as we know, pandemic hits around March of 2020. And really hiring kind of comes to a freeze. So I spent the next couple of years teleworking <laughs> and just trying to figure it out and really landed this role through some networking through another colleague that had made a transition who's working in downtown Raleigh, not here at the bank, but had a friend who I think their, their daughters play like 
softball together or volleyball together, you know, a couple of corporate attorneys just having a conversation. That colleague, former former JAG colleague, was having a conversation with my now chief counsel here at First Citizens. So applied for a role, actually didn't get that role, and was offered another one in the uh, really digital cybersecurity and inf- information security space. I'm not actually doing that role now either. <laughs> I'm <laughs> back in into corporate governance. I'm kind of dabbling in the cybersecurity space and really kind of looking for a role uh, in that in a more permanent sense. But here, corporate and board governance became a little bit more of a high priority need. And so I, I kind of shifted into that. I think they've appreciated my generalist background because I have been able to shift around, I've done some regulatory compliance. I have done some cyber and information security issues uh, between contracts and contract enforcement and employment agreement enforcement and things like that. And dealt with just sort of governance process and, and improvement there, you know, with our board of directors. Interestingly, I got here February 6th. Three weeks later, regional banks start collapsing. Three weeks, <laughs> three weeks after that, we bought Silicon Valley Bank. So it has been a wild ride. About the seven months, I'm going from what I thought was a regional $100 billion bank that was finishing a, a merger that doubled the size of the bank to, you know, overnight conducting due diligence and you know, waking up on a Monday morning as proud new owner of a of a this, this new bank that we got on a great deal from the FDIC. So wow. it's been an exciting ride. We're still in the middle of that merger, obviously, and you know, facing some new regulations coming down from everybody from the SEC to the FDIC and the Federal Reserve. So real interesting stuff, and that's kind of kind of where I've landed. So that first job out of the Army was that. I mean, you obviously went from United States Army to the DOD task force or the DOD, mm-hmm. whatever it was. Was it a task force? That, yeah, the response system pa- systems yeah. panel. It was a backup panel. So how did how did you come about getting that? Was that just a, hey, this is a job that I, I have some interest, but I it's that transition job. I now have solid ground under my feet to look for the next assignment? Or what was your thought process going into that? So I was looking for jobs and I don't know that I was ready to get out of the army. I mean, I, I was ready to get out of the army. I was ready to do something different. But, uh, and, and this may be the case for many of your listeners, I never wanted to be anything but an army JAG, right? And so I didn't have like a big career ambition to do that and then go be a U.S. attorney or go do anything else. So it was a little bit stuck. And I would say about four or five months before I transitioned, my first regional defense counsel, uh, one of my old senior raiders called me up and said, hey, I've been assigned as a staff director of this panel. Do you have a job yet? <laughs> And I said, no, ma'am, I don't. And she said, do you want to work for me? And I said, sure, why not? So that's really how that one came about. I was called and and offered a job before I ever applied for it. Ended up pulling a couple of my uh, other colleagues that were transitioning off active duty as well onto that panel. And we we had a great time for a year. I mean, it was was hard work. It was a lot of work, but, you know, it it was really interesting. I had a, a lot of background in that criminal law space. And I think the primary thing there was that I had a senior leader in a role that had an opportunity to hire and she trusted me. And so I, I got that that first position. And then, you know, why North Carolina? Did you feel that you missed the opportunity to go to Fort Bragg when you were in the, on active duty? So you decided to to find a job down there because now you're now you're a tar hero for the last right. nine years. So by no means did I ever expect to end up in North Carolina. It's funny, my law school roommate, I went to law school at the University of Richmond in Virginia and my law school roommate was a tar heel and her family's still in Charlotte. But no, my, my now husband's family was in, from Southern Virginia, and I really wasn't looking at Fort Bragg. When I was looking at civil service jobs outside D.C., I was primarily looking at like 
San Antonio. I'm trying to think of where else I was looking. A lot of places on the East Coast, but, you know, places like Fort Jackson, places that were a little nicer that, you know, frankly, I hadn't been stationed at while I was on active duty, but, but really loved any time I visited. I wasn't at the time primarily looking to move back to the Chicagoland area where I'm from. And so, you know, landed this job with the Air Force kind of at the right time. And, and I, you know, I, I sort of thought, oh, it's Fort Bragg. But then I was like, well, it's the Air Force and it's not so bad. And I knew there was growth potential on the installation. At the time, I took a GS-13 job, which was, I'll, I'll be completely frank, from the position I was in in D.C., a $20,000 pay cut annually, which was a tough decision to make, right? felt like I was taking a bit of a step back, but I knew that's what I was going to need to do to relocate and to, you know, kind of find my role. I was still fairly junior as far as JAGs and civil servants are concerned. And so, you know, just really kind of wanted to be reasonable about it. And the cost of living in North Carolina was significantly lower than D.C. For those that are considering civil service, the Raleigh locality pay that applies to Fort Liberty is is generous compared to what, you know, what, what it is in, in other high-end areas. Cost of living has gone up a little bit. The housing prices are going up even in the Fayetteville area, I think, but it's still a pretty generous, generous bump compared to what you'd be making in, in D.C. in an equivalent role. So mm-hmm. I was going to ask you that, how, I mean, taking a $20,000 shave is, is pretty significant, especially when you're used to making a certain sum. And, but that was going to be my question that, you know, once you moved down there and got settled and then started living day to day, you know, how did you find yeah. it? Because, because, you know, I'm in a similar boat in the sense that uh, I intend to stay in D.C. for a few years at least because I have kids in high school right. still. But maybe when they're gone, we start looking elsewhere. And of course, there's not too many areas that are as high as the D.C. area as far as right. cost of living and pay. So D.C. is a great place to transition because if you get a civil service job in D.C., you're likely going to be on the 15 pay scale, right? I wouldn't even even 10 years ago, I wouldn't go to work in D.C. for less than a 15 there are people that will probably be upset to hear that, but I, I, I just wouldn't do it. Because of that, when, I'm, when I was a 13, I was a 13, step 10. And because of that, the you know, two years I spent at the Air Force when I got a 14 job over working at Forcecom, I was a 14, step six immediately. I ended up getting a quality step increase at one point. And so if I'd stayed till this past June, I would have been a step 10 in just six years. So, you know, it's, it's easy to move quickly if you work hard. Those steps come quicker than you think in a lot of places. But I think there are a lot of people out there, you know, that, that don't want to be in the D.C. area and are looking for those, those 14 and, and rare 15 roles that, that come around outside the D.C. area. And I, I mean, I would encourage anyone to look at, and, you know, jobs at Fort Liberty. There are a ton of 14s on that installation, just as there are, you know, in the San Antonio area, especially if you include Austin in that search where Futures Command is and some of the other kind of heavier locations. I was always a little bit amazed from Forcecom headquarters perspective that we only had one GS-15 across the entire Forcecom footprint. So the only GS-15 lawyer in all of Army Forces Command, which is a command of about 750,000 soldiers and civilians, is sitting at that headquarters in, in Fort Liberty, North Carolina. So it's tough to find those 15 jobs. I do have friends that have crossed over to other agencies and have gotten kind of a little bit more traction doing that. But within the Army, it's just tough to find those, those graded positions. I actually was offered a position at the JAG school the same week I accepted this role. I and mean, that would have been a lateral move. And so I just couldn't do it. This is just too good to pass up. So, Joanne, going from essentially being a, a criminal litigator in the Army, obviously you, 
you pick up associated issues, chapters, and the administrative processes and those sorts of things. But how easy or difficult was it to making the transition to the portfolios that you carried with the Air Force and with the Army at, uh, at Forcecom? So for me, I think it was pretty, they were pretty natural moves. The hard part for me, I think the thing I missed when I left active duty was that there are very few leadership roles for civil servants. You're often an individual contributor. If you have, you know, junior attorneys or paralegal support in your office, you're an informal mentor because you're just not going to be in the rating chain unless you're the chief of some section. And even so, sometimes you might be kind of vice out for a, a deputy or another military member that really needs to get that supervisory experience on their profile for their growth purposes. So the legal work has never been the challenge for me as far as kind of moving from job to job. It's what role I play as a as a teammate in that office. And so moving from a kind of formal structured leadership role to an informal mentor and leader, kind of leading from behind, if you will, was probably more challenging. The thing I loved about my time at Forcecom is that, you know, it's kind of the best thing and worst thing. I think one of my ROTC instructors said, you know, the worst thing about the army is that when you work with people you love, they move pretty quickly. And the best thing about the army is when you work with people you hate, they move pretty quickly. So you get a lot of turnover, as everybody's familiar with. And I just had a really great opportunity to meet a number of company and field grade officers that were colleagues and I now consider friends that are, you know, kind of scattered to the four winds. And they came through and I gave them, you know, my perspective on, you know, not just Forcecom, but the Army. The beauty of being a civilian is you can speak a little bit more honestly, right, about um, everything from the assignments process to, you know, what a good job is, what a good OER looks like, or a good fit rep for, for you Navy folks that might be listening. What's kind of that flowery language that doesn't really mean anything and, yeah. you know, kind of how to, how to work through your career and, you know, make good headway. So, you know, that was fun. But the legal work itself to me was never really challenging. If you can do criminal law, you can do ad law. Not to offend anybody that does ad law. I did ad law for a long time and, and loved it. But that ad law skill set is, is what's more translatable than a lot of us give ourselves credit for. What you're doing if you're doing administrative law in the federal government is regulatory compliance work. You are really looking for federal statutes and regulations that do or do not support um, any action that's, taken, that's being taken. Now in banking, we have a whole compliance section that works through required reporting and necessary timing of certain, whether it's SEC reporting or reporting to, to federal regulators on, on various issues. But that's process, right? There's a law and there's process. And, and, and there are systems for processes, there's software for processes that really support that. But if you can understand the law and understand how to research the, the Code of Federal Regulations, you're probably a lot more marketable than, than you think. The challenge is getting that skill set recognized by, by folks in the private sector. Yeah, and, and I want to talk about that because that was my next question. You got your MBA, which is obviously helpful to show that, hey, I, I have some business brain here. I, you know, passed the class. I mean, and I'm, I'm distilling it down, right, obviously. Right. But I'm finding this out that I can put together a resume. You know, if you're going in cold, networking still remains a key. But if you're right. going in cold and you're trying to explain that, I'm finding that the difficulty is still like, likes, like. They they write up right. a job description with the background that they experience, just like we would if we were advertising for someone in our office, the ideal candidate. And, you know, there's a certain amount of risk of taking somebody 
from the military because, well, right. I just don't, I've just never dealt with military jags. You can't discount the networking aspect here. I mean, I've got a couple things in the fire right now, and it's because of networking. But when you went through the interview process and you said you didn't get the job that you originally applied for, how did you sell what your experience, both as a military and civilian attorney uh, with the Department of Defense? So I think there's there's two aspects of it. One, I think a lot of us look back at our, our resumes and think I've done so many different things, right? Jack of all trades, expert of, of none, except that's not true, right? We get into jobs and we're expected to be a subject matter expert within usually, you know, 60 to 90 days. And then maybe you're running that shop, right? That in and of itself is a skill set. So I think you've got to be able to sell your adaptability and the generalist quality of our backgrounds. I definitely came into the Army JAG Corps when when being a generalist was being sold as like the the career track, right? They didn't want specialists, they wanted generalists. Now they're moving a little bit more towards allowing that specialty, especially for those that want to focus on criminal. But having that generalist background and being able to say, listen, I've done contracts, I've done administrative law, which is, you know, being able to explain what, what administrative law really means. You know, that it's not just, you know, social security disability type law that's, you know, notice an opportunity to be heard type stuff, but, but what that really means when it comes to advising your commanders, which are business leaders, right, on, on regulatory requirements. Being able to explain, that, you know, that you've litigated, maybe not civil litigation, but you've, you've been in a courtroom and you think like a litigator and you put projects together like a litigator because that's a skill set. And so I think being able to kind of broadly understand that. And then the other piece is really doing your homework and doing your research, understanding what that company is about, you know, what the role you're applying for. Believe it or not, I applied for a role in corporate governance. And so I was kind of prepared to come in and talk about, hey, you know, this is what your expectations of a bank's board composition need to be. And if you don't have this kind of thing, then that's where it should focus. And then very quickly in the interview, it sort of redirected into the, well, you have this interest in this digital technology space. You know, can we talk more about that? And I talked about my experience in government information practices and you know, some of the issues we, we had there as well. So the interview process itself is a lot of thinking on your feet, but it's getting in that door that can be the hard part and selling yourself. And so the recommendation I would make to anyone is, you know, most of us have at least undergraduate classmates that are somewhere in business or a friend, you know, from home or, or, or something like that that are in the business world. And maybe they're not lawyers. Ask them to go over, I mean, spend like an hour or two with them to go over your resume and translate it translate it from military speak into corporate and use the obnoxious corporate catchphrases that are out there and replace the obnoxious military phrases that are probably sitting in your resume that you don't even realize are there. Quantify items on your resume where you can. I think using old evaluations to do that or old award write-ups is really helpful. And understand that your resume is going to be an iterative process throughout the rest of your career. That's kind of the easy part of being in the army, right? You just don't have to redo a resume ever. But as you transition, you should really, you know, to turn a phrase, keep your head on a swivel for the next role. I think most people end up staying at a company two to five years. And then, and this is advice I've actually gotten internally from some folks that have gotten to know outside of the legal department that are, you know, kind of trusted friends and colleagues that they move every two to five years just for the sake of renegotiating a salary, getting into a different practice area, skill set, that sort of thing. So just be aware of that. And I think the, the third thing for me that was absolutely crucial and was recommended by um, a colleague was American Corporate Partners. It is a free service. I'm sure others have told you about it, that I was paired with a, a corporate mentor who was absolutely phenomenal. 
And I think it made all the difference in, in my process. It certainly helped me in my salary negotiations in a way that I never expected. So I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage anyone to sign up for American Corporate Partners that has the opportunity to do so. The American Corporate Partners, it's my understanding, Do you? maybe I'm wrong, do you have to have a certain amount of time on active duty left or is it that you can sign Mm-mm. up anytime? No, I actually signed up like a, a year and a half ago. So I'd left active duty around 2014 and was a civil servant after that. It's literally any veteran. And I think they take military spouses. I could be wrong. But just decided that, you know, hey, I need a little bit more resume help was actually paired with a general counsel of a defense firm. And she was just amazing. She had no military background, thought what I did was incredible and really kind of gave me a different perspective on what I did and helped me sort of tweak some of that language in my resume to be a little bit more corporate friendly and a little less DOD. The discussion I just had recently with a former colleague, and it's one of the irons I have in the fire, maybe, was saying, you know, do you have this experience? I said, well, you know, I've done this. He said, oh, this is the term for that. And just knowing the terminology, because you're right, I think we do get into a habit of thinking this is DOD-centric, DOD unique, or Department of Army unique, Department of Navy unique, common thing with a different, different terminology. And if you're able to capture some of that terminology and throw those words out during your interview, what I'm being told, you know, they say, hey, this person's obviously got some insight. You know, you're just like any other job, you know, taking over and trying not to uh, let them see your let them see your skirt, if you will, until you figure out what you're really doing. Right. I had a uh, ROTC classmate turned JAG as well. It's actually at Capital One. And he and I were having a discussion about it at some point. And he's like, you know, the traditional track is totally right. The traditional track to get into in-house counsel positions is to go through a law firm, right? You do come out of law school, maybe a clerk for a year, you go into a law firm, and then you start looking for in-house roles somewhere usually, you know, four to eight years after, you know, you've been in a firm after you graduated law school. And firm lawyers think one way and JAGs think another way. Firm lawyers think in terms of billable hours. They they think in terms of, you know, sort of these informational memos and white papers. And oftentimes you'll find uh, in the corporate side that you'll have colleagues that come from firm roots who are looking for the 100% or 110% right solution. And it may take them a week or two to get to. Your JAG colleagues are going to get a 90% solution today. That is a selling feature because most of the time, particularly in a, in a fast-paced, highly regulated industry like, like I'm in now, you know, they need an answer right now, maybe an hour from now. And I think all of us have that experience of, of a commander or a military judge or somebody looking at us and saying, I need the answer in an hour. Being able to turn that skill set around and say, I'm not looking to drag this out and, and, <laughs> and bill hours, right? I'm not used to having two weeks to mull over a, a thought, you know, or perfect my argument. I know that I'm not going to let the perfect get in the way of the good. And, and I'm going to get you the answers you need to, to keep the business running. Most people in or out of legal departments are going to like hearing that. M- most places work with outside counsel on some issues, right? You know, let the outside counsel sweat those those two week issues, but but when they need an acute answer and they need it, they they need it from me right now. You know, the other piece, you know, that I, I just again that generalist background. I came in in two weeks after I got here. I was in a meeting with our chief counsel and our CEO. You know, briefing him on what we would consider on the corporate side government affairs, 
it was prepping him for a meeting with the vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board, along with other regional bank vice president or regional bank presidents and CEOs that that happens about uh, semi-annually. And we don't have a government affairs section. And my boss turned to me and said, Joanne, you've done, you've done this in the Pentagon, right? Do you mind putting something together? <laughs> and so I'm doing the briefing book for the CEO two weeks after I got here. So let them know that you've got a broad skill set, that you are a broadly skilled generalist and that you're a dynamic learner and that you're adaptable. And I think you just got to find the right fit. And, and there are plenty of folks out there that have run into enough of us that have made the transition that hopefully we're, we're making a good reputation for former JAGs out here doing our, doing our work. So Joanne, you, you got the master's of business degree. You have switched jobs, obviously the bank, you're learning stuff. How do you keep evolving to be ready for that review two to five years? How do you stay relevant? How do you keep evolving your practice to, to continue to have it broader? Are you going to take more classes or is it at this point just through the experiences that you're gaining on the job? I think it's a bit of both. So one of the um, advantages of, of being in a great corporate office is we've got some streaming CLEs, Practicing Law Institute, PLI, offers streaming CLEs and, and a number of classes. And I kind of keep in touch that way with emerging topics and, and things I'm interested in. The other piece is really just kind of honing in my skill set. I'm thinking about my CIPP. I've talked to some friends and colleagues that have done that as well. Haven't taken the plunge on that yet, but I think if you're going to get, I will say this, if you're going to get a certification as an attorney, CIPP is probably the one to go with. It is the most recognized privacy certification that there is. There is a US-based and a global-based, so depending on what kind of industry and, and whatnot you're looking at, if you're looking in the you know digital tech privacy space, that's, that's probably a good certification to kind of chase after. There are a lot of roles out there that are looking for CIPP. So that's one that's kind of on my to-do list, but, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. So No, I, I understand. Yeah. People can't see you because as, as you know, and I know right. we're both on Zoom, but I'm looking at a relatively clean office and I'm looking at, more importantly, green stuff growing behind you on the outside of your window, which yes. if you had an office in the Pentagon, you wouldn't be getting. That's correct. Uh, my office in the Pentagon actually just, Faced another wall in the Pentagon um, for those of you that work there, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm downtown Raleigh. I actually still live in in the Pinehurst area for those that are in North Carolina and, and know the layout. So I have a 70 mile commute, <laughs> which is no small feat. But I'm only up here two to three days a week on a telework schedule, so it's it, there's a little bit of flexibility with that. Um, and we're in a great area downtown Raleigh. We're actually uh, Midtown Raleigh in the North Hills area, but it's it's beautiful here if you can stand the heat and humidity right now. Well. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to spend with us. I think Dan's I think right. So. I think you have had an interesting career track. While you were talking about CIPP, I pulled it up here. And people are saying, what is that? It's the Certified Information Privacy Professional. And I'm looking at right now, uh, the website I pulled up was the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Careers and Studies, which is nicccs.csa.gov. So if folks right. are trying to feverishly uh, keep up with Joanne and the recommendations. Just just put CIP, CIPP and you'll find it. Yeah, and I would recommend if you're looking at roles and you're you're like, really, how many roles are looking for this? You know, go into LinkedIn and type in a CIPP. Um, you're going to see tons of roles come up in two different areas, and this is what's interesting. In the corporate world, the chief privacy officer is not a lawyer, but is often filled by a lawyer. So, for instance, our our chief privacy officer 
is a lawyer by trade, but she's not actually practicing law in her role. They love lawyers in those roles, and, and they actually fall under um, most companies' compliance departments. So, you know, when you have something like a CIPP and you can kind of look beyond just the legal roles, it, it broadens those opportunities and gives you a little bit more perspective too. And so, you know, I think for me, my goal is to, and the reason I, I did this with you, Tom, is, is I, I want to be able to help as many of my colleagues land where they want to be as possible. So, you know, if anyone wants to find me on LinkedIn, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to connect and provide any advice or assistance I can. Awesome, Joanne. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us. Okay. And today is August 15th. This will be airing Saturday. Wow. That's awesome. Okay. So, so look for yourself on LinkedIn. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.